gentlemen, the 239th regular meeting of the Civil War Roundtable is open. General Hill, our speaker tonight, was here on November 2, 1951, when he talked to us on the Red River Campaign. Some of the boys still have the maps that he presented to them. It was a very exciting evening. Tonight, we are going to have a talk on the command structure in the Union and Confederate navies. Now, General Hill is a PhD from the University of Minnesota, a college president, an army uh, officer, a commander, and at the present time, he's connected with the University of Wisconsin uh, Coordinating Committee for Higher Education. So it gives me great pleasure to introduce to you General Jim Dan Hill. Mr. Chairman and fellow students of the Civil War, that is an embarrassing date that your chairman just gave. But I was last here in 1951. That must have been a terrible speech if it took you fellows this long to get over it. <laughs> of course, we feel very kindly toward this club in Wisconsin, because within recent memory, we've had Ralph Newman up to tell us about Mr. Lincoln in Illinois, and we've had uh, Mr. Tosh up to tell us about uh, artillery and its range, calibers, and so forth. He really embarrassed me. I asked him about a type of gun and I mispronounced it, but he corrected me uh, uh, in his response. Uh, <clears throat> we've had uh, a good time with uh, all of you, time to time. Mr. Twist is a member of our historical society. I first met him uh, at one of our meetings or at Parity Shane. Now, <clears throat> to get on with this thing, I, well, I do want to mention one fellow that I uh, found out about. Only tonight, I heard about a fellow that picketed the Wisconsin exhibit uh, because uh, Wisconsin stole Abraham Lincoln's horse. <laughs> now, I hope that he did a better job picketing our exhibit down here than a case that I heard about where the fellow ran around the street and ran into one of his buddies and says, get around the corner to the big department store right away because they've got a luscious dynamic blonde and a sultry brunette, and both of them are modeling live models of topless bathing suits. Get around there before the cops lower the boom. He rushed around, and here was a big mob there, of course, and 
Above the mob were bobbling signs of pickets, of all things. And uh, so he muscled his way up and finally got up to the picket line. And he asked one of these scrawny women that's carrying the pickets, says, what are you, what are you people doing picketing this? And she says, well, we represent the IBTC. He looked up, yes, unfair, unfair to IBTC. He says, what's the IBTC? She says, the itty bitty titty committee. <laughs> I can assure you that anybody that tries to picket the charms and the tourist lures of the great state of Wisconsin, as did your fellow member, Mr. Sprague, anybody that'll do that would be in that category as far as I'm concerned. Now, I'm not here to uh, tell cornball jokes that I'm sure you guys have heard before. I'm giving Sprague uh, Illinois rights on that story. I'll give it time. If it isn't already in vogue here, I must get on with the serious business of the Navy's North and South. Perhaps I ought to explain that uh, I have a long-winded document here uh, that I could read. And if I should read this, I would make fewer mistakes than what I'm going to make. But I just hate to read documents. Uh, the last one I read, I went to sleep before the audience did. <laughs> and that's terrible. So I'm going to talk along more or less freewheeling from notes. I think I'll pause once in a while and invite maybe a question by way of getting my breath. And uh, then I'll quit at a reasonable time. And if I don't get around to the Confederate Navy, why well, just remember that they lost and uh, the less said about the losing side, the better. My job is to, or what got me involved in this is about 1958 or 9, I decided to write another book. I had written a book called Sea Dogs of the Sixties that did pretty well. And with the centennial coming up, I thought that I ought to do another book entitled Admirals in Blue and Gray. And before getting down to the thing, I thought I'd better find out how many admirals they were and what they commanded. So I sat down and wrote a rather long essay on the command structure so that I would know who was doing what and what the shape of uh, operations looked like. And I sent it to a publisher and he reminded me that I was behind the date on a contract for a book I'd already written, and I didn't get any encouragement from him. So I just laid it aside, and that uh, immortal book on admirals in blue and gray have never been written. 
Uh, I did uh, finish the other book three years behind time. Uh, I sometimes wish I had finished the book because I think I would have enjoyed writing it. I was in the Navy in World War I. I was a colonel commanding a field artillery outfit in World War II. And I can assure you that as an enlisted man in the Navy, even on a destroyer, an old four-piper, I ate and slept better than I did as a colonel of field artillery in the field. <laughs> so if anybody asked, one fellow asked me, says, how did an army man get mixed up with this Navy business? Well, the answer is, is I was in the Navy first, and I, I think, I, I often thought that I was right the first time. <laughs> now to get on with this job, we'll start with old Gideon Wells, Secretary of Navy, top of the command structure, editor from Connecticut, cantankerous old scissor bill, something like uh, uh, the Secretary of Interior in uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt's cabinet. Olick is himself. There's a little similarity between them. A man who constituted himself the conscience of everything and everybody and wrote it into a diary. Gideon Wells was not a stranger to the Navy Department when he took the job under Lincoln. He had a political job under Polk all during the Mexican War as chief of the Bureau of Provisions and Clothing, which was a political job. Of course, they had a competent clerk around that did all the buying and distribution. Oddly enough, when he got down to take this job, some of the people that he had known back in the Mexican War were still there. For instance, there was Captain Joseph Smith. He was still chief of the Bureau of Yards and Docks, even though he was over 70 years old at the time. Along with old Captain Joe Smith of Bureau and Docks, Yards, there were a number of familiar faces, clerks and the manuenses and file clerks and whatnot. And furthermore, on the list of ships were many old familiar names, such as the Constellation, the Constitution, uh, old veterans from the War of 1812, also such ships as the Cumberland and other majestic ships of the line. However, this idea, this idea that America was completely unprepared in 1861, I have come to challenge. America was better prepared in 1861 to fight a war than she had ever been before in the history of the nation. The change of ships, the incoming of steam, the larger size of ships, France was experimenting with ironclads. Our naval constructors knew that ironclads were possible. It was just a question of how soon you wanted to spend the money. They knew how they ought to be built. Furthermore, 
in addition to these old ships that uh, had fought in the War of 1812 in the Mexican War, there were a number of very fine new steamships, such as the River Class, the Minnesota, the Wabash, uh, the Colorado, finest steam frigates afloat. 1855, 40 guns, latest model. Then there was a class of sloops of war of the Pawnee, not the Pawnee, but the Kearsarge and Wyoming class. Then there was that city class, like the Hartford, four or five or six of those ships. It is generally overlooked, but the American Navy in 1862 was probably the third to the largest navy in the world at that time. The American people had been frightened by the pastry war in the Gulf of Mexico when France landed there and threatened our Monroe Doctrine. At the time, There were 42 ships afloat and manned, ready for combat. 24 of the 42 were steamers, warships. The rest of the ships raised the potential overnight strength of the Navy to over 100 ships, counting supply craft and auxiliary craft. And many of those were in stocks, and some of them were in what they call in ordinary. England coined that phrase, and a ship that was not manned, but we say today mothballs. But the ships could be demothballed and afloat and in action much sooner than we can moth demothball a ship today. The strength of the Navy was only about 6,000 officers and men. Except for the home squadron, the Navy was scattered all over the world. Can Canton, China, East Indies. Uh, one uh, ship, the Wyoming, was up uh, off the coast of China, almost to Japan. A number of ships were on the slave patrol on uh, the African shore. They had other ships acting as policemen of the high seas up and down the Pacific coast of South America. The ships were scattered. The home fleet consisted of 12 ships, seven of which were steam ships, steam men of war. The flagship as you would expect, was a sailing ship, the old frigate Cumberland that had been a flagship in the Mexican War, built 1842. Either Horatio Nelson or Hull or Stephen Decatur would have been perfectly at home on the decks of that ship. The only thing wrong with it was that uh, uh, it didn't have steam. Uh, Decatur would have admired the brand new rifled guns that were on the ship. 
And of course, old uh, flag officer Pendergrast, who commanded the home squadron, he didn't want to get on a stinking uh, steam kettle bearing craft like one of those steamships. He wanted on a good sailing ship where he didn't have to go in for coal, where he could stay at sea as long as he wanted to. And so that was his flagship. And usually he was down in the West Indies. At the time the war broke out, he was up around Norfolk, Virginia. And at the time the war broke out, uh, only two or three of his ships were in northern waters. And the people with the treason complex uh, indicted old uh, Secretary Toosey for being incompetent for letting those ships all be down south. Well, now, as a matter of fact, the remarkable thing is that there were any of them up north because those down in the Caribbean and the West Indies were suppressing piracy. Ships in that day and time were policemen. They were not striking forces of maneuver like the Seventh Fleet out in the Straits of Formosa and Vietnam today. So there was a feeling of uh, uncertainty, treason. Things were wrong. And poor old Gideon Wells uh, wondered how many traitors he had in his crowd. Well, let's look at the list. Smith was loyal throughout the war and held the job that he had until 1869. He was Yards and Docks, Bureau of Yards and Docks. The naval constructor, John Linthal, he held that job throughout the war. The head of the pay bureau, uh, or provision in clothing, was a paymaster named Horatio Bridge, chief paymaster of the Navy. He held the job throughout the war. The Surgeon General, who ran the Bureau of Medicine, was a chap named uh, Whalen. He held the job throughout the war. The Bureau of Ordnance and Hydrography was held by a double-dyed Southerner, George W. Magruder. And he looked at Magruder, and he knew Magruder was a traitor if there was one. Magruder, and he knew, he felt Magruder was an ambitious man, ready to torpedo the department and all that sort of thing. On Magruder, he was partially right. Magruder didn't do anything treasonable. He simply said he wasn't going to stay in the Union if his state went out. He went out, and I've often wondered what became of him. He was an elderly man, but his name does not appear on any roster of Confederate naval officers or upon the naval list of any ship of the Navy. He did clear out, and that left the Bureau of Ordnance and Hydrography vacant, and that job was given to a Captain Harwood, and shortly thereafter Harwood, who was, Harwood was along in years, the job went to the famous John A. Dahlgren, uh, of whom we'll hear a little more later. The Office of Detail and Assignment was very important. Old Gideon Wells knew there was a traitor in that chair. It was Sam Barron, 
of Virginia. Sam Barron did go south. He committed no act of treason. He went south and took a lower rank in the Confederate establishment than he had had in the Northern establishment. He was the first Confederate naval officer to surrender and be to an America uh, to a Union force, and he was eventually exchanged. He wound up in Europe on a stuff shirt job in charge of organizing crews for cruisers and blockade runners. Franklin Buchanan, of course, was commander of the Washington Navy Yard. And I don't have to tell this audience who Franklin Buchanan was. He did go south. He did take the same job in the Confederate Navy Department. He ditched the job to get command of the new ironclad ship uh, Virginia, the rebuilt Merrimack. He did command the Merrimack in her battle with the Monitor. He did go from there to command of the Confederate forces at Mobile. He did organize a fleet at Mobile around the ironclad Tennessee, and he fought Farragut there. Now, actually, the old man's fears were, uh, his alarm was feeding on his fears. There was very little disloyalty in the Navy. <coughs> Out of 93 captains, there were no admirals in the Navy in those days, captain was as high as you could get. And if you got an assignment as a fleet commander, you were allowed the temporary title of flag officer. The rank of admiral did not come into the American Navy until the 16th of July, 1862, after Farragut had broken through at New Orleans. Up until that time, they were flag officers. Out of 93 captains, 38 of them were Southerners. Out of those 38 Southern captains, only 16 went south. Out of 127 commanders, 64 of them, over, slightly over half, were Southerners. Only 34 of the 64 went south. In the Navy, there were 351 lieutenants of whom 151 were Southerners. Only 76 of those 151 Southerners went south. There were 318 midshipmen, past midshipmen and beginning midshipmen. 111 of them, of the, 100, of the 318, 148 were Southerners, 111 went south. In the Marine Corps, there were only six, there were only 13 captains. And um, except for the commandant, there was no higher rank. Six Southerners, three of them stood with the Union, three went south. There were 40 Marine Corps lieutenants, 22 of them were Southerners, 11 went south, 11 remained north. Of the lesser ranks and ratings in the Navy, of the remaining 5,500 or thereabouts in the Navy, far more of them stayed north 
than south. Now bear in mind that they had a nucleus to draw to when I said that they had probably third to the best navy in the world. England and France were definitely ahead. When you consider that and consider the fact that they held their professional nucleus, combined with the fact that the North was more maritime than the South, combined with the fact that they were able to organize and build these 90-gun, uh, these 90-day, four-gun blockading gunboats within 90 days with which to augment. The job of the Navy, uh, they had an advantage over the Army, scattered as it was and more tightly integrated with the services. I'll end the discussion of the Navy Department by calling attention to the fact that in addition to these bureaus that I've mentioned, in 1862 they added uh, a bureau of uh, navigation, and that job was taken over by C.H. Davis, of whom you gentlemen are familiar. A Bureau of Engineering was organized. That was taken over by Engineer-in-Chief Ben J. Isherwood, and for many years there, the Navy uh, followed the Merchant Marine custom of saying the Chief Engineer, the First Assistant Engineer, and Second Assistant Engineer. Um, so the upshot of it is, is they had a rather competent staff down the line. The home squadron that I mentioned earlier was commanded by Pendergrast, and he was an old-timer. He had begun his service in 1812 as a midshipman. At that time, he was over 70 years old. He had uh, five uh, sail warships. He had seven steamers, uh, and this was the man that Wells gave the order to to give the blockade pronouncement. And of course, the blockade would be enforced by the home squadron. Well, he got out the pronouncement, and that's about all he did, because he didn't have ships enough to put one off of each port. Very quickly, the department followed up by creating the Coast Blockading Squadron. As fast as they could get ships out of ordinary and get them manned, and they put it under command of Commodore Silas H. Stringham. And they shelved old Admiral Pendergrast, or Flag Officer Pendergrast, um, by putting him in command of a West, West India squadron. They gave him a more modern flagship and fewer cruisers and told him to go down there and look out for blockade runners. <coughs> Stringham was over 60. The only reason they called him a Commodore is that he had been a captain for 20 years. He had been in the service for 50 years. Uh, they took the big flagship Minnesota out of mothballs the 13th of May, 1861. He took command of the Coast Blockading Squadron with orders to blockade the coast from Washington, D.C. to Brownsville, uh, Texas. Well, needless, needless to say, he didn't have um, the ships with which to do it. So shortly thereafter, they split his command and created the Atlantic 
blockading squadron, and then they created the Gulf blockading squadron. The boundary line between the two squadrons was Key West. Stringham had everything from Washington, D.C. to Key West with his command, and a man named Mervyn, who likewise was a veteran of the War of 1812, he had everything from the Rio Grande to Key West. He was uh, a contemporary of Stringham's, but he was eight years older, and he didn't last very long because of the bad climate. His flagship was the USS Colorado, a sister ship to the Minnesota. So by September 1861, he was relieved for reason of health, and a fellow named McKean took over. Uh, he continued in the same job um, uh, uh, and uh, Mervyn uh, got another job, uh, retired in 1866. By that time, he was crowd and 80. Uh, McKean commanded in the Gulf until Farragut's arrival in uh, 20th of February, 1862. And when Farragut came down with his striking force, they split the Gulf and half of it uh, went to McKean, whose new command began with Pensacola down to Key West with, with Pensacola exclusive, and Pensacola became Farragut's base. And then Farragut, in addition to striking up the river, had responsibility for the blockade from Brownsville to Pensacola inclusive. When they did that, they cut down McKean's command from Pensacola exclusive to uh, Key West and with his base at Key West and the other boundary around the Cape Canaveral. They call it Cape Kennedy now. So there you have the structure of the Gulf. And I might as well tell you ahead of time that, of course, Farragut's command, the West Gulf Squadron, is the one that did the fighting. It was the fightingest squadron in the American Navy of that era. Uh, McKean inherited the deadest sector of the bunch. There were no big cities to blockade. There were no rich prizes to capture. Um, it, was, it was a pretty sleepy job. Sometime his uh, sailors would get so bored that they'd go ashore and, and burn the salt works. And one of his, um, and the Confederates were always boiling the ocean water for salt. Um, one of his officers, a fellow named Thornton, was captain of a 90-day gunboat. And the later Admiral Schley was his number two in command. Uh, he was off uh, some seaport down there, and he got so bored, and he was, began treating himself and his boredom with alcohol. So he decided to go in and bombard a fort that had about 50 guns uh, bearing on him. Um, fortunately, they didn't sink him, uh, but uh, word got back to the higher command, and so they shipped him to Europe. He became number two man on the Kearsarge. His name was Thornton. And uh, by the way, they used Europe as a place to dump these officers that got in Dutch over here. 
The Eastern Gulf Squadron were continued under McKean, and McKean was in time relieved by a fellow named J.L. Lardner. By the way, he's an ancestor of the Ring Lardner, the famous humorist. Ring Lardner's real name, full name, was Ringo Lardner. And uh, so they called him Ring, and he was named, uh, he has this admiral's name. Uh, Lardner was later on uh, shifted to take command of the West India Squadron, where a fellow named Charles Wilkes, the man who precipitated the Trent Affair, was uh, making a mess affair of things. And they took Wilkes home and court-martialed him. He invited it. And Lardner took over. And his successor was Theodorus Bailey, who had been flagship commander under... Uh, under Farragut, and this was a deserved promotion for him. As I've said, the Farragut squadron did the fighting, New Orleans, uh, Port Hudson, up to uh, Vicksburg and back, and he also uh, captured and lost Galveston. He had disastrous troubles at Sabine Pass. He landed soldiers at Corpus Christi area. He landed soldiers at Brownsville, and he commanded the West Gulf Squadron until the twilight of the war, in fact, until after Grant was hammering at the gates of Petersburg. And at that time, they relieved him there and brought him up to the James River to command the Chesapeake because the Confederates had built up a fleet of ironclads under Admiral Sims, who had lost the Alabama in a battle outside Sherburg, so they moved the, him up there to uh, protect Grant's flank. Now I've told you about the Gulf Squadron and so forth. Let's go back to the Atlantic Blockading Squadron where we left old Stringham. <coughs> Stringham is a man who deserves a bigger place in American history. True, he was overage, he was frosty, he was... Uh, um, better at home on a sail ship than a steamship. But the guy had the urge to do something. He looked at the map, and he saw that whoever held a little place called Fort Clark at Cape Hatteras Inlet, if he had that, he could blockade that whole coast. So he took a scratch force of five ships, including his flagship, and about 860 men picked up at random from various National Guard regiments under a rather unique character named Benjamin Butler. <laughs> and he and Ben Butler went down and caught the Confederates by surprise at that inlet uh, in August 1861. That's fast action. That's quick action. And in the Army and Navy, a quick decision today is sometimes better than a divine inspiration a month later. He went down, he seized the inlet, and they held it from there on and set up the springboard for the later Goldsburg, uh, Goldsboro uh, Burnside expedition to Roanoke. Uh, Stringham, I think, deserves a, a, a tall place 
in American naval history for the promptness and speed with which he seized the initiative. And let me pause here to say that at no time did the Union Navy lose the initiative from the day that Stringham made that first attack. And by the way, that's where old Ben Butler, they got the idea that he'd be a good man to send down to New Orleans with Farragut. That was the beginning of his reputation as a field commander. Uh, but with the forces that he had, it was still unrealistic that he could blockade all the way from Washington, D.C., be responsible for the Chesapeake, and go clear down to Key West. Bear in mind that, that uh, Cape Canaveral Key West had not yet been given to the West, to the East Gulf blockading squadron. That was unrealistic. So they suddenly split his command, and what Stringham had left was the North, blockade, North Atlantic blockading squadron. It wasn't the North Atlantic at all. It was just the, that North part of the Atlantic that touched the Confederacy. And their responsibility went from Wilmington inclusive to Washington, D.C. From Wilmington exclusive south, a new squadron came into existence under command of uh, Samuel F. DuPont. And of course, all of you are familiar with Pont's, uh, DuPont's famous expedition that uh, uh, he was, it was really a, the first of the big amphibious expeditions. He sailed uh, with his flagship and about uh, 15 warships and about 35 uh, troop ships bearing 12,000 men under a, an old crusty regular army major in the temporary rank of brigadier general by the name of Sherman. Don't confuse him with war is hell, Sherman, because he's an entirely different fellow. Uh, they went down. They caught the Confederates again by surprise. It's one of the few times in the uh, Civil War operations that complete tactical surprise has been achieved. He carried his force outside uh, Hampton Roads with sealed orders and he didn't brief his own staff until he was at sea. They showed up at Port Royal. They bombarded Hilton Head. They put uh, the Brigadier General and his 12,000 men ashore and uh, did very well. Uh, DuPont, furthermore, that gave him control of those sounds. He sealed off the Georgia coast. He sealed off G Savannah. He sealed off San Fernandina, uh, Florida, Jacksonville, Florida. But the big nut he couldn't crack was Charleston. And because Farragut had gone up and captured New Orleans, they kept thinking that this guy, all he had to do was go in there and kick Fort Sumter aside, which had been rebuilt, and capture Charleston. Well, he just couldn't do it. DuPont, however, uh, uh, I think did a highly credible job, but after his, uh, he launched a big all-out attack, he, they gave him ironclads, they gave him monitors, 
They stripped all the other fleets so he could do it. He shot the works. He lost one of his monitors. The rest of them were so badly mauled by the guns at, um, around the fortifications there. He lost ships to these Confederate uh, submarines. Uh, he was up against a tough job. So they relieved him after his uh, big all-out attack. Uh, the truth about it is the poor fellow was uh, uh, sick from adverse weather and strain. I have a great deal of admiration for DuPont. Uh, he is one of the two DuPonts that got into the powder burning business rather than the manufacturing business. The other DuPont was an artilleryman uh, up in the Shenandoah Valley. Those are the only two DuPonts that have really thought that it was more fun to shoot the stuff up than it was to make it. Uh, however, the artilleryman reformed. This DuPont died about 1865. He never got back to active duty. The other one uh, reformed, and he went back into the manufacturing of powder. And the last, I think he died, a United States senator, a financier, and a very distinguished citizen of Delaware. Uh, John A. Dahlgren, who was quite a politician, uh, quite a palace soldier, was sent down to take DuPont's place. Personally, I don't consider that the best of appointments. Uh, Dahlgren was a wonderful ordnance officer. His son was a very fine cavalry officer, the Dahlgren Raid. And I know that old John A. Dahlgren had something because he was married to a very brilliant uh, and beautiful uh, uh, career wife, and uh, she spent the rest of her life uh, going around denouncing other women that believed in woman's suffrage and woman's rights. Now, I maintain that old Dahlgren must have had capabilities above and beyond those normally <laughs> expected of a naval officer. Uh, Stringham, for age, was relieved, and in due time, um, our old friend Gideon Wells looked around and got Captain S.P. Lee, a very dynamic young commander, uh, 50 years of age. He was a cousin of Robert E. Lee. He was a Virginian who didn't go south. Uh, he had commanded one of uh, uh, Farragut's uh, ships at New Orleans, he had carried a flotilla clear up to Vicksburg, and he was the first Union officer that Vicksburg refused to surrender to. He uh, commanded the Oneida of the Kearsarge class. Some people say that he had a combat record that merited his appointment. Some of his detractors uh, remembered that he was the son-in-law of old Frank P. Blair. And of course, that made him the brother-in-law of the two powerful Blair brothers both of whom were generals in the army, and one of them, in addition to being a general in the army, was a member of Congress and occasionally took time off from combat to go and vote right with the administration. However, I searched the record very carefully, and I have no evidence that old Frank P. Blair ever put in a word for his son-in-law. Uh, I did find that at the end of the war, after his son-in-law had been an acting rear admiral in the permanent grade of captain, that old Frank Blair, Blair House fame, 
did go around to old Gideon Wells and say, now, when you reorganize the peacetime list of the Navy, I hope that you remember that the boy has been a rear admiral and he did very well and so forth. Old Gideon Wells paid no attention to it because as late as 1870, uh, uh, S.P. Lee was still on the active list of the Navy and he hadn't gotten past number three on the permanent list of Commodores. So he still had three files to go in 1870. However, uh, S.P. Lee did do very well. His prize money, you see, in those days, uh, you captured ships and the court, the prize court condemned them and then they were sold at auction. And then the crew and everybody up the line that participated in the capture got a cut. Well, the admiral on that beat, of course, got a thin share of every ship that was knocked down. His take-home pay, in addition to salary and other perquisites, was $150,000 from prize money. So it could be that old Gideon Wells decided that the boy had done pretty well. <laughs> well, Wilmington, Delaware, Wilmington, uh, North Carolina, turned out to be the same thing to S.P. Lee that uh, Charleston was to uh, DuPont. He tried to capture it, and he tried to capture it, and he tried to capture it, and he couldn't. And actually, there's no reason why they should have captured it. They captured, you remember, they captured Charleston, not because the fleet was there, but because um, Sherman marched to the sea from Savannah, cut in back of Charleston, and Charleston had to surrender. He captured it. It fell from the land side. Well, by the time the the they mobilized enough ships to cap and men to capture uh, Wilmington. Uh, Sherman was already at the back door of the city, and it would have fallen anyway. But the Navy was so burnt up that they couldn't capture the place, and they were so mad at Butler. He was still in the amphibious warfare business. He went down, and he refused to commit his men to an all-out attack. He said, the war is nearly over, so what? Um, they relieved him and attacked the place anyway, land and sea, and they captured it in the twilight of the war. But by that time, S.P. Lee had been transferred to command the gunboats on the western waters. You remember after the Red River campaign, D.D. Um, Porter had his troubles after down on the Red River. They brought him up and gave him the job Vice Porter relieved and sent uh, S.P. Lee to the Western Waters. There you have, in a nutshell, the several squadrons of the Navy. Uh, the North Atlantic to Wilmington, the South Atlantic, Wilmington exclusive to Cape Canaveral, this is in the final phase, and the Eastern Gulf from Cape Canaveral with headquarters at Key West and around to Pensacola, and the West Gulf from there to the uh, Rio Grande, inclusive. Now there were some lesser commands, such as the James River Flotilla, 
which during the Peninsula Campaign became quite important and is part of the Peninsula Campaign, so I won't bore you with it. You know more about that than I do. Uh, the, when the uh, uh, James River Flotilla under Wilkes and later under Commodore John Rogers failed to get past Drury Bluff, and when they got their wind up over the, the, uh, uh, when they got their wind up over the uh, Merrimack and so forth, that became a rather dead area. And Wilkes was shifted to command of the West India Squadron. I've mentioned him before. Then I've mentioned also these independent ship commands where they would send people who weren't making good anywhere else. Uh, for instance, uh, they had two full four-striped captains in command of two old sail ships, one the Constellation in the Mediterranean, the other one the Jamestown in the East India. Well, those people were out there protecting against pirates and that sort of thing, like they'd always done in time of peace. The Kearsarge was a fine steamer, and it was commanded by John A. Winslow. He was relieved of his of command of a gunboat on the Mississippi River. Point one, the, somebody stole $9,000 out of the safe aboard his ship before the paymaster doled it out. Uh, how that happened, nobody knows. He had a bad habit of preaching sermons to the men, and after the Battle of Antietam, he expressed regret that the Lord wasn't on the north side, and it's too bad that the south didn't win that battle and go on in and bag old Abe. Well, one of his men wrote uh, an account of his sermon to the Baltimore paper, and the Baltimore paper printed it, so they thought that he ought to go and take command of the Kearsarge which was then at the Azor Islands and responsible for patrols from the Azores, uh, the channel ports. And of course, he was the luckiest rascal of them all. He ran into the Alabama and sank the Alabama in a one-ship, wooden-ship duel and um, became probably one of the most famous naval officers next to Farragut uh, of the whole bunch. By the way, Thornton, that I mentioned later, was his number two officer. The rest of the ship, officers and men, were all volunteers from Maine. There were three regular Navy officers on the ship. All the rest of them were unemployed whalers, unemployed uh, clipper mates and masters, and the three regular Navy officers aboard were the discredited captain that preached one sermon too many, Thornton, who with four guns aboard engaged a fort. And then there was a midshipman about uh, named Preble, about 18 years old. He was out of the regular Navy. Otherwise, it was strictly a merchant ship crew. Well, I've uh, covered this thing uh, reasonably close for the Union Navy. I've talked to you for about 40 minutes, which is the longest speech I've made in a long, long time. I apologize for talking so long. I may have made some errors. I could have been uh, more accurate if I had read the manuscript, or even if I had done like uh, a case that came to my attention down in North Carolina, uh, where the uh, 
native son went out to the Philippines during the pacification. He was a sergeant in the old regular army all his life, and he became a temporary captain out there, contracted fever, and was brought home, and he was the highest soldier they had ever had in those hills. So they thought he should have a funeral appropriate to his rank and distinction, and the only fellow that could write a funeral oration was the high school teacher, and of course he had a peep-squeak voice, couldn't speak. The only man that could reach the audience in that pre- uh, loudspeaker era was the village blacksmith and he had a bellows like voice so he was nominated as the orator and the high school teacher coached him well this fellow could memorize the speech pretty well but he got the names mixed up now don't worry this is not the Hart Schaffner and Mark story it's kind of like it but it's not the same story so he told this guy says put these names in the order that they come in your speech on a neat list under your coat, and when you get to them, why, tick them off, and you won't make a mistake, otherwise you'll make an ass of yourself. So he did that, and his speech went something like this. Fellow citizens, it is with saddened hearts that we gather here in this humble churchyard to pay tributes to our great and distinguished fellow townsmen. True, he achieved no rank higher than captain, but he was out of joint with the times, as Shakespeare said concerning that fellow named Hamlet. Had he been in joint with the times, had he lived in France during the convulsions of that great war, he would have ranked with that great warrior and statesman, Napoleon Bonaparte. Later in the pages of history, had he been joined with the times, he would have been in the pages of history with those great generals, Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson. But why dwell longer upon eulogies to our departed friend when already, only too soon, he is passed o'er the river of life and now rests in the arms of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. <laughs> Now, gentlemen, if I'd had that list under my coat, I would have been more accurate, but the speech would have been longer. Thank you. Gentlemen, the question. Morrison? Tell me, how does that weird and uh, almost understandable organization, the Fleet of the Inland Waters, fit into that, uh, uh, <laughs> that table of organizations you gave us? Well, now, actually, that's, uh, <laughs> I, that's part of my paper, but it's too long to get into. I'll tell you what happened. Gee, this is terrible. That, that is really, that's really a, a fellow could almost write a book on that, but here's what happened. Uh, that was the fifth naval command that I decided to leave off, but uh, the situation there is that originally the Navy said that was Army stuff, logical. The uh, Army 
knew they needed help, and there were lots of people willing to help them. And one of them was an old boy named Elliot. He was a very famous engineer uh, and uh, contractor, a uh, man of most unusual ability. In fact, he was a competitor to the famous Eads, uh, who was in the same business around St. Louis. Uh, <clears throat> Elliot was a nut on military. Uh, <clears throat> and during the Crimean War, he had decided that the way uh, naval warfare should be fought was to uh, build a ship. He was a steamboat builder, among other things. Build a ship with an iron beak and uh, give it good, powerful engines and go around ramming things. Well, of course, the guy was, he sounded like a, a radical and a liberal, but actually he was a reactionary. It wasn't a darn thing to his idea except the old Roman galley slave a ship with steam engines substituted for the banks of rowers. That's all there was to it. Well, of course, even Simon Cameron had sense enough to know that that was kind of squirrely and a little bit obsolete and back to Roman times. So old Elliot wasn't getting anywhere. But Elliot went down and kept hammering at the army. I'll build you what you need on these waters. And in those days, the western waters was everything that drained into the Mississippi from the St. Croix up in Wisconsin to the Missouri way out with headwaters in um, Montana or thereabouts. Um, he kept concentrating on the army. Well, Eads, his honorable competitor, I don't know whether that was collusion or not, he went to work on the Navy. And he says, you're going to need ships out here on these waters to win this war, and I want to build them for you. Now, while these two uh, contractors were competing with one another, each in his own field, old Gideon Wells picked up the Army, the Navy list and sent out a fellow named John Rogers. He's one of my favorite characters. He was in my book, Sea Dogs of the Sixties. I think he's probably one of the best men in it. He sent John Rogers over to McClellan's staff. This was before McClellan. Uh, took command of the big army, and while he was still in command out in Ohio and West Virginia. He sent uh, John Rogers over to see what he could do to help the army win the war. And John Rogers got out there, and he, he knew they needed gunboats. And his deal was that the army would furnish the money, the army would furnish the supplies, the army would furnish the men. And he would simply help them organize this thing and command the gunboats if need be. But after all, they had gun uh, steamboat captains and pilots, and maybe he didn't belong there. He'd do what he could. John Rogers did a terrific job. He built three gunboats almost overnight, the Lexington, the Tyler, the Conestoga. And those are the three ships that made Grant look good at Belmont and started Grant on the escalator upstairs. Now what happened to Eads? Eads 
managed to close a contract. About time, John Rogers were finishing these three ships. And uh, he got a contract to build six or seven of these gunboats, ironclads. Now, the Merrimack hadn't yet been built. He agreed to build some ironclad steamboats with batteries, and he thought that they probably ought to have Navy men on them, and he'd do it in a hundred days. That isn't all, he did it. And the Cairo that you gentlemen heard a speech about here the other day was one of them. The designs that he got were from a, the design of a naval constructor named Pook. Those boats were considered abortions in the Navy, and they were called Pook's Turtles because of their iron casement over them. Now, about time, our old friend John Rogers thinks he's got a flotilla to command. Who should come out except a fellow named A.H. Foote? A.H. Foote was a man with a future. He was a Christian gentleman. He had a distinguished record as commander of uh, a ship at Canton that turned back some pirates and won a battle over there that the world has forgotten about. And he was a humanitarian. He quit flogging his, he out, outlawed flogging on any ship under his command. He wrote a book against the slave trade. I've got a rare copy of it. It's a dandy book and his experience commanding a ship on the slave trade. In fact, Foote was a man with a future. Everybody agreed that, and besides, he was a high school classmate of Gideon Wells. That may, <laughs> that may have had something to do with the future. Uh, Foote showed up as the senior naval officer on the Mississippi, and he took command of those gunboats, and he did a terrific job a job that is outstanding. In the first place, he got out there and the army treated him like a dog. They said, why, we're glad to meet you, uh, Captain. Now, let's see, you rank as a lieutenant colonel. And he says, how do you figure that? And he says, well, uh, <coughs> a midshipman ranks as a second lieutenant. That's right, yeah, he says, that's right. A past midshipman is the first lieutenant. Yeah, that's right. Uh, a lieutenant in the Navy ranks as a captain. That's right. A captain, a commander in the Navy, can't rank higher than a major. He says, well, let's think about that. But they kept on talking. They says, now the next thing is, is a captain in the Navy can't rank any higher than a lieutenant colonel. And he says, but I'm not a captain anymore. I'm a flag officer. They said, well, that's a temporary rank. That would make you a temporary colonel in our lodge. <laughs> and he showed him an order where he would rank with a major general, but nobody ever read it. In spite of all those frustrations, this man says, look, gentlemen, we are like the shears of a pair of scissors. Either part of a pair of scissors can't do much by itself out here on these waters. If we work together, we get things done. Separate, we're useless. And it was due to that man that, Kate, that 
Fort Henry was captured, and if I remember correctly, the surrender was made to him. He was grievously wounded in the operations against Donaldson, and bear in mind that this heavy floating artillery turned the tide of battle for the Union forces, in my opinion. He never got over that wound. He stayed on the river, though, until after Island Number 10. And after, about before Island Number 10, C.H. Davis came out as his executive officer. And when it was apparent he couldn't carry on, he took a bureau job in Washington and one of the new bureaus, and uh, Davis took command. Well, Davis was a little bit luckier because by that time, the bill of March of uh, 16th July, 1962, had been passed that clarified these ranks and set up what we have, exactly what we have now, except for a junior grade lieutenant was called a master, and a rear admiral, lower half, was called a commodore. Outside of that, the command structure is identical with now. Well, Davis got his rank his major, as a rear admiral, but he didn't get along very well with the generals. And furthermore, <coughs> there was something else happened that tried his soul. This fellow Illett, that we were about to forget about, with his screwball ideas about uh, fighting Roman style, uh, he finally, after the, right after the Merrimack rammed the Cumberland in Hampton Roads, uh, he got a contract from the Army to build some rams. In fact, I think seven. And he was to do it within X days or convert other ships. He got the rank of colonel right out of the Army to command the flotilla. I guess the Army thought that that would rank him with the flag officer, then afloat. Or they might have done better by him. They gave him a colonelcy, and they told him that he could get lieutenant colonels to command each of his rams. Well, he made his son commander lieutenant colonel and commander one of them and took care of his other relatives and in-laws as lieutenant colonels commanding the other. Well, this guy shows up with his fleet of rams just before the Battle of Memphis. He and Davis never got together on signals. It seems as though Elliot had a system of signals, operational signals of his own. He had come out on the hurricane deck with a megaphone and began yelling to his son and relatives in the fleet in line. He also had a system of arm signals and toots on the whistle that uh, meant something to everybody except Admiral Davis of the Navy. They fought the Battle of uh, Memphis together, and I, I, I've looked into it as well as I could. It's the most confused battle since the Roman Admiral Regulus, uh, fighting the Carthaginians in the First, Second, or Third Punic War, I've forgotten which. You remember the story. He lost the confidence of his captains by uh, calling the soothsayer and saying, now open the sacred chickens and inspect the guts and see how we're going to come out. 
the soothsayer said that they might lose the battle unless they did so and so, and so he disagreed and says, throw the guts overboard and the other chickens after them, we fight it my way. Uh, you may remember that he lost the battle. <laughs> However, uh, between uh, Ellet, who was darting in and out, ramming people, and uh, Davis, who was standing off trying to get a bead on them and knock them apart, uh, during the battle nobody knew who was shooting at who. Uh, but uh, when the smoke cleared away, they won, and there's no success like success in battle. Poor old Ellett was killed in action. His son carried on. His son lost the ship, didn't he, down the Red River? Later on. So uh, after that, though, the Navy was in command on the Western waters, <laughs> more or less. That is, I'll tell you, that, that is a very confused story. I don't know of anybody that has sat down and really tried to tie the loose ends together. Now, D.D. Porter, uh, succeeded, uh, was transferred up from Farragut's command where he had commanded the mortar flotilla. He took command on the western waters, and he stayed in command until after the Red River campaign, and then from the Red River campaign, he went up to uh, uh, Wilmington. Now, that's an awful long answer, but you brought it on yourself. <laughs> <laughs> San Francisco and New York. But the Russian Navy was not a powerful Navy, nor was it a very effective modern Navy. And it was split three ways, the same as it is right now, the Black Sea Fleet, the Baltic, and the Pacific. And the, I don't think they sent but two ships to uh, San Francisco, but the ships that they sent to uh, New York and those were their latest ships, and the reason they sent them were not that they were our friends, but they were afraid of a war with England, and they wanted to get those ships out of the Baltic and out of the Black Sea. So it was a maneuver, it was a strategic visit, rather than a friendly visit. General? Cannon, you spoke of who went to the South. Was he related to President Cannon? No, I don't think so. Um, if so, very remote. Uh, the Admiral Buchanan was a Marylander and a very, very fine officer the, uh, and a descendant, I think, of a governor to a Maryland. He had deep roots back in Maryland. Um, and his wife was a Marylander. The other Buchanan was from Washington, PA. Uh, General, um, I certainly want to congratulate you on the recognition of Fort Hatteras and Clark and some other points that I'm sure if you went on you would make about the coastal operations which are so terribly neglected, and particularly Silas Stringham, whose ships actually bombarded these sand forts, which I was foolish enough to go look for once, and you can't find. But uh, <clears throat> I, I would like to comment a bit on General Butler's heroic role in this engagement. The report reads quite well. 
Um, just, just in brief, though, they did carry out a daring uh, invasion and a small boat operation in dusk. It was dusk. The Federal soldiers had a quite a bit of trouble falling out of the big whale boats and getting ashore, but they routed the Confederate pickets with considerable ease and set up a camp. The next morning, they discovered the pickets. Yes, they were Confederates, all right. The only trouble was they were Confederate cows they had routed that night. <laughs> so General Butler's first engagement at Fort Addison Clark was against <laughs> Confederate cows. <laughs> I wanted to mention something about elephant. During the uh, last war, Admiral King got a, a destroyer named Elliot, which I had in charge of building. And they dug up all the elephant family to get a, I think there were several collateral lady elephants who had the right to, to a crystal. <coughs> finally decided the right one, and the elephant survivors came and told us all about old grandfather Ram. In fact, in the jubilation after the launching, one of the Ellets uh, came, he thought he was a Ram. With a glass of bourbon in one hand, he, he would Ram anybody. Sounds more like Brother Hicks. <laughs> Kearsarge uh, left the Navy. I uh, just just accidentally I checked the record to see what happened to him. He left the Navy and went into civil life about 1875 as a lieutenant. With all this Civil War crowd, now he was a descendant, I think, of the Preble, who was an admiral out on the Barbary pirate operations. But the same name and everything. But he played no role, subsequent role in. Uh, well, that's why I was curious. I never. No. no, he disappeared from the Navy list. Any more questions, gentlemen? General, you'll have to come back again and tell us about the Confederates. Uh, in 18 years. No, sir. Oh. <laughs> <laughs>